This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. We've been talking to innovators and speaking about the unique role neurosurgeons as doctors play in the advancement of medical science. And we've had some wonderful guests on, uh, me and JP, for the last couple of weeks, including our, our guest uh, host, Lou Toomey Allen, from last week to interview Volker Sontag. Today, we're going to talk with another angle on things, and I'm really delighted to have with us today Dr. Chris Kager. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Chris, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience real quick and uh, let it, let them know who you are and where you practice and all that. Sure. So my name is Chris Kager. I grew up in uh, upstate New York near Albany. Um, I went to undergraduate uh, and medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. And Mike and I are nearly contemporaries. I finished uh, Penn Medical School in 1994. And then I did my neurosurgery uh, training at the University of Cincinnati and Mayfield Clinic and finished there in 2000. And then I uh, did a complex spine fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic with Ed Benzel, Ian Kalfas, and the team there, including the orthopedic side of things. So we got to rotate six months on orthopedics. And I got to work with Izzy Lieberman and Bob McLean and the group of orthopedic spine surgeons there. Uh, after that, I actually joined the practice that I'm currently in, in 2001. So I've been here now for 20 years. And when I joined it, it was one of the largest private practices in Pennsylvania. So I was in Lancaster Neuroscience in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And the draw was, you know, I was, uh, I had been in Pennsylvania and I met my wife um, when we were undergrads at Penn and we subsequently got married during medical school. And she was also in medical school at that time at Temple. So she did her training in Cincinnati at the Children's Hospital there. And her family lives in the next county over. So we came back to Pennsylvania. We actually had a pretty close association with the Penn Neurosurgery Group. So we did certain things with them, had meetings, looked at quality measures, uh, things along those lines. And um, interestingly, our... Uh, hospital became part of the Penn system about six or seven years ago, and we had had discussions with regards to potentially joining them. And so my practice merged into the system, and we became hospital employed in uh, January of 2019. That's wonderful. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's really one of the fun things about doing this podcast is that we see what a small world neurosurgery is, and JP and I have just in the past two years done a whirlwind tour of neurosurgery. We see so much. I mean, my brother went to UPenn Medical School. It's the oldest medical school in the country, founded by Ben Franklin, right? There's a lot of history there, and one of the reasons we do this podcast is to teach the young people about about history. And you mentioned Ian Kalfas. Uh, he was Volker Sontag's first fellow. So there's a lot of interconnections inside our community. So that's that's a wonderful thing. But what we really wanted to get to today is to talk about the role you play in the innovation world. And, and we, we love to talk about how neurosurgeons have invented things or had a role in designing new devices or techniques or procedures. But in the end, most of what happens has to be somehow funded, right? And so you've got you've you've dipped your toe into that world, which is how how does innovation actually get turned into a product or something that can be used commercially or in the clinic, right? So tell us a little about how you got started into that world. So I will say that I always had an interest 
um, in the business side of things. So when I was at Penn, and you're right, Penn is the oldest um, medical school. The Penn was founded in 1740 and the medical school in 1765. And one of the uh, benefits of being at Penn is the Wharton School is there. So I took classes when I was an undergraduate in Wharton, um, but just decided at the time, since I knew I was going to go to medical school and I was already leaning toward a surgical career, uh, not to pursue an MBA at that point, but I did take some business-related classes. Um, when I was at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Izzy Lieberman was actually also getting his MBA at that time, which I found you know, very interesting. And I didn't know many physicians that were in the business world or actively involved in innovation or in the venture capital world. But it was always in the back of my mind and always on my radar. Then, you know, getting into a private practice uh, when you're sort of starting to build things became a very busy uh, time of my life. My wife and I uh, ended up having six children. Um, so you can imagine that between starting a new practice, building that and uh, raising six kids, there wasn't a lot of spare time. I did a lot of reading uh, and I kind of kept my interest up, but I would say it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I started becoming a little more aware and active in the private investment world. So I made a couple of individual type investments in a couple different areas. Um, I actually ended up joining a local angel investment fund. And there were about 50 people in this angel group. And about half of them, interestingly, were physicians. And one of the leaders of the group was a physician as well. So I became kind of you know, interested in how we uh, look at, how we evaluate companies um, while I was with that group. And then about almost three years ago now, through a couple different connections, um, there was a small venture capital fund that was forming Global Health Impact Fund. And uh, I, after talking with them, I was asked to join them as a general partner. So that's really been the springboard for becoming much more heavily involved in looking at innovative companies and sort of the business side of things behind that. You know, Dr. Kager, you, you talk about thinking about the way you evaluate a company. And this is always the most interesting thing to me when we get to talk to surgeons who have gone back and pursued any other kind of postgraduate training. After You know, you've been working within neurosurgery. You've been thinking clinically. You've been thinking surgically for years and decades. And then you go back and, you know, you, you had this interest in finance, you had a background in it, you'd been trying things out, but then you go back to get this degree and you're trained rigorously in an organized way to think in a completely different system. I see this all the time because, you know, I talk about it on the show a lot, but my family are mostly lawyers and they think in a completely different way than you or I or Dr. Wang or other physicians because they work in a legal framework of words and ideas and the way those rules interact. And we think in this clinical medical scientific framework with the ways that physical objects and systems interact. And so maybe you could talk a bit about what it's like this far into your career, this far down the road of thinking like a surgeon, then to go back and find training in a completely different mode of thinking and a completely different intellectual system. Yeah. So um, I, there's definitely similarities and there's a lot of differences. I think maybe the biggest thing is it's almost like learning a uh, foreign language. So, you know, a lot of the terminology that's used, it was a bit foreign 
um, you know, in my formal training, when I went through, I, I was uh, telling uh, JP, I actually did decide to go back, uh, especially during the pandemic when I had some a little bit more free time since our surgeries were a bit limited. I did go back and actually get an MBA as well. Um, and so that was almost, again, like I said, learning a foreign language. Our first uh, sort of module was accounting. And that was a whole new world. Like I always thought of accounting as uh, money in, money out. Um, but it's a lot more complicated than that, as you might imagine. Um, I would say that uh, the, the one thing I've seen sort of across the board is that a lot of physicians are sort of interested in the next, um, you know, new shiny object. And uh, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't work. And a lot of it has to do with uh, the background of how we, how as a venture capital person, how we look at the um, market, how we look at the product, is there product market fit? What do the financials look like? What are the obstacles? You know, healthcare has a lot of obstacles as far as innovation goes, especially with how things go through the approval process and how they get reimbursed. So there's a, even though it might be something um, that is effective, I, you got to think, does it always, is there a problem? You know, is there a problem that it's trying to address? How big is the problem? Um, what's the market? You know, how does the market look? It, what's the total addressable market or TAM? Um, and then how would that look as far as revenue and returns down the line? So it is, it is a little bit complicated and uh, sometimes, you know, you're not looking at something that's going to be terribly, terribly uh, adopted uh, long term. You know, it's very interesting. We've had a number of guests on this podcast who have talked about their time uh, in, in their sort of second act. I'm thinking about Alex Kalesi, the chair at UCSD, who went to Sloan MIT Business School and uh, Dan Shuba, who went to Wharton. And, it, you know, it's a really great thing to do. And but it's a lot to tackle. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of a lot of fear of going back to school. But I love your message in the sense that, you know, neurosurgeons are, are pretty unique. And, and one of the great things about neurosurgery is that, you know, how medicine has this thing of like, is it an art? Is it a science? But we know that for most neurosurgeons, they, they tend to veer on the techie side as opposed to the fuzzy side. And, you know, the counting that you mentioned, that's one of the most threatening aspects for the fuzzy MBA student, right? The ones that are good at the drinking and carousing, but understanding balance sheets and numbers is is something very different but a lot of us are good at that skill set so tell us how it was like to dust off the cobwebs and get back into that because to me i'm thinking maybe i should go to business school i'm thinking wow how am i going to do with business school accounting right because it's really it's a fascinating uh data science right yeah so i again accounting to me was sort of uh, the most challenging but in the end i think having strong background you know, in the math and sciences actually did help that. I would say I tended to approach it fairly methodically. And, um, you know, I, it was sort of uh, repetition and uh, drilling down what you know and what you don't know. And then I found a lot of outside sources that were very helpful as well. So yes, it was, it was a little challenging becoming a student again. And I, you know, when I went through this, I figured out that I really hadn't been truly a student like in class 
1992. Um, you know, because really your last few years of medical school, you're not generally sitting in a classroom. Uh, so it was, it was a bit, you know, that was th almost for me, it was almost 30 years ago. So I think, you know, seeking out outside sources and, and also it was interesting because even though it was virtual, mostly, uh, we did have a cohort and we did have groups that we did individual and, uh, group projects with as well. So I had a little bit of, uh, you know, support and people to lean on as well, including actually my uh, one of my partners and the founding member of the Global Health Impact Fund. He actually was in my cohort for the MBA as well. That's very interesting. And, and we definitely want to come back and talk about that fund. But I, I wonder, as we're kind of working through this this story and uh, this process of you going back and getting this training, I'm sure that in your cohort, in the in the group getting the MBA, I would assume at least that it's mostly not physicians and not people from the sciences and from medicine. And so I'm sure that you brought a unique perspective to whatever problems you were being asked to solve. But kind of to invert that idea, I wonder if now that you've gone through that formal training and have that, that process of re-education in a business sense, is that in any way affecting the way you think at work these days? Maybe not just on the business side of things, but the way you organize your day, organize your time and your thoughts when you're on the job doing neurosurgery. I, I would say that that's definitely true as far as how I organize things, because not necessarily from a practical standpoint with how I um, proceed with my neurosurgical career, but more, how do I parse out time to stay involved uh, in the fund and doing all the things that uh, I do along the business side of things? I do think it's given me a little bit better understanding into the black box of hospital administration. Um, you know, what the types of things that they're looking at and how they look at clinicians and providers as far as the financial side of things. I do tend to try to keep things a little separate. Um, so when I'm wearing one hat as a physician, I'm 110% you know, on dedicated as a, a clinical neurosurgeon. Um, but then when I don't have that role and I'm looking at companies or talking to founders or going through data rooms and looking at balance sheets and looking at projections, literally physically getting my hands on their products. So I've done that many times, including like a, a very interesting uh, VR surgical planning and um, uh, uh, three-dimensional uh, surgical reconstruction company that we're looking at. I really like to kind of get my hands on those things. So I really do try to separate those two parts of uh, my life. How was it with six kids? I mean, I don't know what their ages are, but you're doing homework. They're doing homework. <laughs> what was that like? So the, the backstory is um, I have four kids that are all either out of college or out of grad school. And then we still have two kids at home in high school. And, you know, I because of my personal interests, I've always said to my older kids, you know, hey, you know, if, if you can ever think about this, you know, you should really consider getting an MBA. And I think three out of my four older kids are in that like techie business world. Uh, and my the fourth of the older ones is actually about to finish law school. Um, 
And so far, none of the other ones have decided, yeah, that's a good idea, Dad. I'm going to go get an MBA. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go get my MBA. <laughs> so I, I'm at home doing all these things, and my uh, younger two are sitting at the table, you know, doing their calculus homework, and I'm trying to learn, you know, what the heck net present value means and how you calculate it. So yeah, it was kind of interesting. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't lean on them for any you know help for most of these things. But uh, well, you know, it was it was interesting. It is interesting because I, I would tell you that just in the OR yesterday, I was talking to the residents, and I, I think we've entered this era. And and I'm going to go out on a limb here, as I always do, and probably get in trouble. But we've entered this new era where I, I was learning that there's a new specialty called anesthesia assistant. So for a long time, most of our listeners know they're anesthesiologists, of course. And then CRNAs, which are nurses who train to do anesthesia, have been trying to take over, right? And nurse practitioners, and I run the APP section of the AANS, so I love nurse practitioners and PAs. But now in Florida, nurse practitioners are all getting doctorates, which is a PhD, which means you have to call them doctor. So now you have these PhD nurse doctors who are out there. And, and there is this threat that doctors in general be overcome by nurse practitioners and PAs and, and become obsolete in some ways. And now, of course, you see the anesthesia assistants who are not even nurses threatening the, threatening the CRNAs, right? It's a very interesting reductionist race to the bottom process. But in the, what I was getting at was when I'm talking to the residents, I'm like, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of medical students and residents and doctors, but I've always been on the side that medicine is largely a science and a, and a practice. And so there's a reason why organic chemistry and physics and uh, biology and calculus are required. And people often say to us, especially now in this new kitchen world, like, why do you need to know calculus? Because we're just going to follow the guidelines for hypertension, right? Sure. That's good. Go with that all day long. And then nurse practitioners will eat you, they'll eat your lunch. But what we're talking about here is if you're a young person listening, if you're in high school, college, medical school, the stuff you learn, the basis of understanding of how the body and how technology works is important, right? So you have to do that. You have to go through that process, which is what you're talking about. You have to go through the calculus to learn how to read some of these balance sheets. So as you were working through this in your mind, did you have any thoughts like, wow, if I was back in high school again, I would have studied harder or something? Um, you know, so I was a pretty good student in high school without really trying. I would say I underapplied myself. Um, but it, it is interesting what you say that because I actually loved going back and applying myself again. Um, you know, almost like, hey, let's see if the old man can do it. Um, but interestingly, what you said about like some of those basic sciences, it's really interesting when you're talking to a company and all of a sudden, like they flash back and start talking about the Bernoulli principle, you know, or something like that. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I remember that. You know, it might have been 20 years ago, but like I remember it. Um, so there, you know, some of these companies we're looking at have such unbelievable engineering and uh, technology behind them that you know, just from my neurosurgery training, it, you wouldn't have an adequate grasp of what some of these companies are doing. Um, it kind of made me, you know, I was a neuroscience major um, at Penn, but it kind of made me think, hmm, you know, maybe engineering uh, uh, would be a good background when you're trying to get into like, I see mainly medical technology and digital health companies on the venture capital side of things. And a lot of that obviously is, is engineering based. Um, 
So yeah, I, I think you always are going to have a, an ability to apply that basic knowledge. Well, of course, and, and you know, you don't need to have a, a broad understanding of calculus and deep statistics to follow a guideline, but you do to make the guidelines. And I, I think that's what really sets apart the people with a deep understanding of systems and data interaction and the people who do want to just show up and follow a, a list of principles and a list of steps to get through the day and, and treat you know, simple cases. But I, I wonder, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kager, we were talking before about all these various businesses that you've got yourself into. You said that you started as an angel investor. And when we were emailing back and forth before today's show, you, you mentioned a few of the businesses. So I wonder if you could share for my curiosity, as well as for our listeners, what kinds of businesses does a neurosurgeon get into when he starts investing? And I will say, I want to hear about the vodka company. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think, you know, there's a, a bit of a breakdown uh, of how I look at this. I also love the area that I live in. So I, I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and 15 uh, minutes west of Philadelphia. But there is an amazing local community here. So I, I do tend to support companies in our area outside of what I do for, as a, you know, a medical technology venture capital fund as well. So, yeah, I, I've been involved in some individual type investments on my own. Um, and then we've invested in already 10 or 11 companies in our venture fund, which is actually uh, it's a $10 million fund that's almost closed now. So on an individual side, yeah, some of those companies are a li little off the beaten path of neurosurgery. Um, so there is a local company here that uh, is a vodka company. Um, they have done very, very well. It's called Hala, H-O-L-L-A, and it's kind of a millennial targeted uh, beverage company. Uh, they do some interesting things with like pre-mixed drinks. And then instead of having uh, just bottles, they also... Um, distribute these in like these large pouches and it almost looks like you know a, a large size uh, juice juice box <laughs> so you're not worried about glass breaking like at a tailgate or on a boat or something like that so that's been an interesting company there's actually a social media monitoring company called Lifebrand where um, a person can actually log into this platform and it goes through their social media and looks for questionable or profane posts that might come back to haunt them. And it can also be used um, on, a, on a higher level, like by an enterprise or a company. It has to be compliant. So the person has to give their consent to do this. Um, but a lot of companies are interested in sort of protecting their employees' image or brand as well as their own. So you really can't go more than a day or two without hearing about somebody's post or tweet, you know, getting them into trouble from something that happened, you know, eight years ago or 10 years ago. L luckily, when I was growing up, we didn't, we, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have Twitter, uh, you know, to, to sort of uh, get into trouble with. Um, but my kids do. So I've, you know, I've tried to get them to go back and take a look at this. And it's interesting because the platform, this life brand platform actually then lets you edit or delete your posts going back to day zero. Um, so they've actually done really well and they have partnerships with a whole bunch of pro sports teams. They're, ba they're based outside of Philadelphia. So they partnered with uh, the Eagles, the Phillies, and if you uh, you know Google them, they actually have a, <clears throat> an interesting partnership with the 76ers, 
which they just announced yesterday. And then they've gone out and they they just partnered with the Braves, who won the World Series, the Patriots, the Chargers. And I think that what they're going to try to do is get in on a league level. So that's been a really interesting company to watch as they go through uh, the corporate world. Um, yeah, that's phenomenal. And, and it really shows, you're, you know, you're thinking like a neurosurgeon. It's, it's a real bullet and bandage setup you have where you sell the young people the alcohol. They make the bad decisions and the foolish posts. And then you help them clean up later. It's it's a perfect business model. I love it. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way, but there you go. <laughs> exactly. Neurosurgeons are always thinking ahead. Um, but I, I was just going to ask when you're when you're at this level as an investor and you have this fund, how do you find these companies? Do do they know about your fund and they come to you, or are you out there looking for businesses to elevate with your funding? So so those companies I spoke about were just me personally. Um, with our with our global health impact fund, that's actually was founded by my partner who lives in the Bay Area of California, and that still is considered a you know primary hotspot ground zero for medical technology. We've sort of developed a bit of a name uh, because it is a clinician founded and led fund. So we will get approached uh, by approximately three to 400 companies a year. And a lot of times what they're looking for is a combination of things. They're looking for funding, yes, but they're also looking for validation. So if our fund, again, that's clinician-led, uh, looks at them and we say, yes, we believe we're going to invest, then that can be considered a signal to other investors in the space that they've already basically gotten a stamp of approval. The other thing we offer is we have a global health impact network that we're building, and it's going to be all sorts of healthcare professionals, clinicians, administrators, nurses, therapists, and we can rely on that network to help us on the due diligence side of things. But also after we do make an investment, they can help on the deployment side as well. And as a final thing I'll say with that is we also have now launched an accelerator program in partnership with a couple other entities. So we can take a very early startup uh, and help them get to the point where they can deploy and look for further funding as well. So it's a bit of a you know multi-pronged strategy as far as what we do. We never just want to be you know putting in dumb money. We, we want to help these companies that we believe in um, and help them get to the point where they can get fully commercialized. uh, And whether that's through other services or whether that's through helping them obtain more funding, you know, that's what we're here to do. Well, Chris, I got to tell you, if you're a rapper and you have your own vodka, then you've, you've basically made it. And I've had Hala. I am very much following that. And I hope you're investing in that new powdered alcohol that's coming out because that's going to really, you know, be a, big, big product. So I'm super (laughs) excited about what you do. Why don't you tell us about what you have coming next since you have so much free time to do all these wonderful things and operate and raise six kids and go to business school. What's coming next for you in your future? You're still a very young man. Yeah. So, uh, well, you have to say that because you're only, what, two years behind me, I think. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think I'm taking a little bit of a, a breather. Um, it was we're still, you know, sort of battered by the effects of COVID. We have varying levels of uh, hospital bed and OR availability. Um, I'm focusing 
basically on helping a couple of the companies that I've invested in. I won't go into detail, but there's one other company that I personally have been involved in called Gen Hydro, and it's a green energy hydrogen company. And I think I've always been interested in renewable energy and uh, hydrogen specifically. So this has been really interesting. And the amount of interest that they've been generating is extremely high. So I've been helping them partner with uh, other companies for deployment and also helping them on the investment side. So that's taking up a lot of my time. Um, with regards to our Global Health Impact Fund, like I said, we're about to close a $10 million fund. And then we're going to open up two other funds on the drawing board. One is another $10 million fund that's more of an individual investor fund. And our investors are typically 80 to 90% physicians. Um, But we're also planning a $100 million institutional fund. And we're bringing on a couple other uh, general partners that have uh, fairly significant experience on the institutional investment side as well. So I think those things will take my time. And I still have two kids at home, and it won't be too long. One's a senior in high school, and one's a, uh, a sophomore in high school. So, you know, enjoying that time with them and our other kids around the country as well. It gives me an excuse to go out to the Bay Area, not only to visit my fund partners, but I have a daughter who's an engineer out in the tech world and a son who's a cybersecurity specialist out in Silicon Valley. So we do have a a chance to travel a bit. And then on a very personal note, we just got a new puppy. So that's taking up a lot of time as well. Well, you know, you know, I I think it's hard to get accurate information today. And in the print media, I read the Wall Street Journal. And I just saw an article this past week about the battle that's coming between the uh, batteries that Elon Musk and Tesla and all the other people are following and then the hydrogen power. So I think you're on the right track. So as always, you're ahead of the curve. I think hydrogen is definitely going to have a big role. If you look across Europe and Asia, they've already made that leap. Um, and, and hydrogen, you know, really is a form of energy storage, so to speak. So it is kind of akin to a battery, but people don't always see it that way. Um, so I, I agree. I think it's going to be very large. Uh, and unfortunately, I think the U.S. is a little bit behind the curve on that. Well, where else can you find a conversation that covers everything from hydrogen power to vodka to social media? Um, o- only when you talk to the, uh, the businessmen of neurosurgery. Uh, Dr. Kager, I do want you to treat this and, and view this episode as your personal audition for Shark, for Shark Tank. Uh, we'll be sending this directly to Mark Cuban. Please remember the little people who got you there when you're on the show. Um, we'd always love to come on and we definitely appreciate your time today coming on the show to talk about your process of going back for the NBA. But uh, these amazing and interesting companies that uh, that you're investing in now. Thanks for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.